Hello, welcome and kumusta. My name is Hal and I am your occupational therapist. And welcome to my podcast entitled OT Conversations. This is a podcast about occupational therapy and any other topics relating to the field, be it medical foundations or philosophical foundations, some of my personal and professional opinions and point of view. I am hoping that through this podcast, I'll be able to help out occupational therapy students and clinicians to navigate their way through their clinical practice involving occupational therapy. This time, I'd like to talk about stroke. And I know I have had this quick discussion with you in the past, but uh, we'll go just on the basic information about stroke so that you'll be more familiar with it. And it is really important that you become familiar with it because your intervention will be based on the knowledge, the foundation knowledge of the condition that you are treating. So stroke would be a neurological condition. And knowing this means that you are strengthening your scientific knowledge and scientific foundation skills. So stroke, by definition, is any sudden onset of focal neurological deficit. And these are some of the definitions. So it strikes. That's why it's called stroke. You need to be familiar with the term cerebrovascular accident on the Latin cerebro, which is brain, vascular, which is the blood vessels and accident. And there's a situation. So that's why it's a CVA. So this is a, a brain infarction that is caused by ischemia or either caused by thrombosis or embolism, or it can be caused by hemorrhage. And CVA is the most, uh, uh, the most common cause of CVA is stroke, uh, particularly the thrombosis. Yeah, So CVA, stroke, interchangeable. Now you can classify the stroke. And this is based on the temporal profile, meaning based on the time um, that it emerges. Uh, some of the classification could be the TIA, which is transient ischemic attack. And in here, you will have a focal neurologic deficit with complete recovery within 24 hours. And then you can have a stroke in evolution or progressing stroke. And this is the time where we're not going to be talking about the uh, interventions really. So this is progressing stroke or stroke in evolution as it happens. And then the other one is when you have had a complete stroke where the neurological deficit is actually stable and it's static. Yeah. Now the risk factors for stroke, so if you go and start interviewing your patients, the risk, risk factors will be the age, hypertension, if they have pre-existing heart disease, diabetes, previous stroke and TIA, and these are the uh, five established risk factors as well. And there are other risk factors such as hypercholesterolemia and, uh, and, and RACE as well. But And also, hypertension is the most treatable risk factor as well. Also, um, a treatable risk factor is also atrial fibrillation as well. So let's talk about the typical deficits in terms of the artery that is involved. So you'll be coming across with some of the arteries uh, in your notes. And so let's have a quick discussion about them. Number one is uh, an anterior cerebral artery stroke. So once you have an anterior cerebral artery, you would expect or you need to keep an eye on, but they don't necessarily mean that it's going to be there. So it will always fall on your ability to look at the symptoms. But when it is an anterior cerebral artery stroke, you would look for paralysis and cortical paresthesia of the contralateral lower limb or upper limb. Okay, now you can have mild involvement of the contralateral arm. Okay, you can have impaired judgment and insight. You can have apraxia of the gait or ataxia. You can have problems in terms of the sucking and grasp reflex on the contralateral side as well, particularly if it is a very intense cerebral artery, which is a very bad affectation. And then you can have some uh, bladder and bowel incontinence as well. So that's anterior cerebral artery stroke. 
the middle cerebral artery stroke, you would expect a contralateral hemiplegia. You might have hemianopsia, visual agnosia, loss of sensation, and you can also have dysphasia. When you have the um, posterior cerebral artery strokes, you, you can have alexia or the inability to read. You can have mental change with memory impairment, uh, inability to recognize people and things. And this would have been uh, visual agnosia. And this may often be temporary. And you can also have the third nerve palsy. Yeah, third nerve is... Um, what is the third nerve? That would be oculomotor nerve palsy. All right. The Now, moving on, we'll talk about the difference between the anterior and posterior circulation stroke because you would have that um, in terms of you'll come across these things. So the uh, uh, note that the hemiparesis and hemianesthesia does not reliably differentiate between an anterior and posterior circulation stroke. Yeah, that's very important for you to know. So if you see uh, an impairment on the, the right side, that does not necessarily mean it's going to be anterior stroke, okay, or anterior circulation. It can also be a posterior circulation. And uh, I'll tell you why at some point uh, during this discussion. Um, the... Um, uh, you have the two symptoms uh, that will accurately indicate an anterior uh, or carotid artery stroke, yeah, would be the aphasia or a monocular blindness. But it's very seldom to see a monocular blindness. You would have hemianopia, okay, uh, but the aphasia, yeah, is is one. When it is aphasic, then that's interesting. So aphasia, because the territory for the language in the left hemisphere is actually supplied by the carotid artery. And monocular blindness, because the ophthalmic artery is a branch of the carotid artery as well. So right and left uh, problem uh, on your patient does not necessarily mean that it is a posterior or anterior, but if somebody has aphasia and monocular blindness, then they would be the ones that you would that would tell whether it is an anterior circulation or posterior circulation. Let us look more in details about these anterior and posterior circulation stroke. So when it comes to the arteries, obviously, in the anterior stroke, you would have the carotid artery and the branches of the carotid artery. That's the one that is affected. Whereas in the posterior stroke, you have the vertebrobacillar artery and the branches of the vertebrobacillar artery. In terms of incidence, the anterior artery type of stroke is much more frequent than that of the posterior side. And in terms of the ischemic effect, if there is an anterior circulation stroke, you will have the cerebral hemispheres. This is where you would want to find the ischemia on the CT scans. And on the posterior side, it will be more affected on the brainstem and the cerebellum. Now, in terms of the laterality of the symptoms, on the anterior type of stroke, usually it is usually contralateral and unilateral, okay? Whereas if it is a posterior stroke, then it is likely you can have um, bilateral symptoms are likely to be present as well. And they are frequently present, not all the time, but frequently present. So you might wonder yourself, uh, in yourself, you might wonder, you know, say for example, if it's a cerebellar stroke, and the weakness is, to say, right cerebellum, um, and then the impairment is on the right arm, and then you would say, why is it that that is where the symptoms are? It seems ipsilateral. Um, just remember, guys, it is only once uh, it only crosses uh, on the uh, once it crosses the thalamus, so it's cerebellar. Uh, is ipsilateral. Just remember, cerebellar strokes, you would have symptoms that are ipsilateral. Okay? 
Now, in terms of the cranial nerve abnormality, it is not usually prominent on the uh, uh, anterior um, uh, car- uh, anterior circulation. It is really not prominent on that, uh, but it is more pos- uh, prominent on the uh, posterior circulation. Now, in terms of cerebellar abnormality, meaning it's uh, proprioception coordination, um, then it will is not prominent on the anterior circulation, but is more prominent on the posterior circulation. When it comes to the manifestations, uh, the anterior circulation are likely to present with hemiparesis. You can have numbness and sensory loss on um, on the same side as the weakness. You know, you can have aphasia, dysarthria. You can have headache visual field cuts or monocular blindness so or monocular blindness will be meaning cerebral um, cortical blindness now that is on the anterior circulation whereas on the posterior circulation you can have cerebellar signs so you can have this artery as well you can have dysphagia you can have diplopia dizziness okay and you can also have uh, hemiparesis and sensory loss as well in terms of the facial weakness uh, on the uh, anterior circulation, usually it's the lower part of the face. Okay, Now, I've not looked into the evidences or the frequency of this, but usually that's where you would uh, locate it. It's more on the mouth, lower part of the face. Whereas on the posterior circulation, which is, again, it's not common, you have the entire side of the face will be affected. Now, in terms of the movements of the eye or eye deviation, because of the effect on the frontal gaze center, you know, the patient is looking away, uh, looks away, away from the hemiparetic side. Okay, so that's one of the cues. So whatever the side is weakness, that's where they're looking away from uh, in terms of um, eye deviation. Now, that is because of the frontal gaze center. Now, if it was a posterior circulation stroke, because of the pontine gaze center, the patient is looking towards the hemiparetic side. So what's the implication of this? When you look at the patient and they're looking from one side to the other, something is not right, but you cannot tell still whether it is an anterior circulation or a posterior circulation. The one thing that tells that it is a cerebral or anterior circulation would have been an aphasia or mono, uh, monocular blindness, right? Uh, in terms of, um, um, yeah, that's, that's some of the discussion and information about the um, anterior and posterior uh, circulations of the brain. So what else do we want to know? Uh, most embolus coming from the carotid artery and travels, um, and it, most emboli that's coming from the carotid artery and the heart, they travel, so the point of traveling is that it travels through to the middle cerebral artery, yeah? It goes to the middle cerebral artery. In contrast, the emboli seldom travel to the uh, vertebral arteries. Yeah, that's why having a heart problem is a risk factor for strokes, and it is more likely that embolus that is coming or an emboli that's coming from that area will most likely find its way on the anterior or the carotid artery rather than on the posterior side, which is the vertebral arteries. The atherosclerotic stenosis and thrombosis of the carotid arteries is a common pathogenesis of strokes uh, for the anterior circulation. So if it is uh, you have an anterior circulatory stroke, just look for atherosclerosis. That is very common. Now, in contrast, the atherosclerosis of the vertebral artery as well is very uncommon as well. So when you have the stroke, the chances are it will always be on the anterior circulation. Now, usual pathology in the posterior circulation stroke is because of thrombosis and an occlusion of small penetrating arterioles 
of uh, the uh, the vertebrovascular artery and this is why the the brain stem will often present as a, a very little chance that it's going to be a brain stem stroke okay but when it happens it's much more difficult much more uh, of a problem because it's at the lower centers and the entire function is really cut off when it is at the brainstem so you can have a potential global symptom that's happening in here and what it is so you can have a total locked in paralysis as well so if we are looking for the different pathogenesis so what would be the potential uh, origin of these strokes so you have um, the incidence of these things so you have a diff different types of stroke yeah so you have the thrombotic stroke one that's caused by blockage embolic one that is caused by a free-flowing item on the blood vessel that has found its way on a smaller blood vessel you have a lacunar stroke and then you have a bleeding type so of those four major types so in terms of incidence uh, the ranking goes like this so thrombotic is more frequent followed by embolic followed by lacunar and followed by hemorrhagic okay now in terms of the mechanism the thrombotic stroke you can have atherosclerotic uh, stenosis or there is an occlusion of the large vessels of um, of the heart or blood large blood vessels embolic stroke uh, mechanisms because of a cholesterol or uh, uh, you know other um, hematogenous materials so again another side effect when somebody's had a heart operation or any operation that involves uh, meddling with the arteries you can have embolic stroke and then in terms of lacunar it's very much similar uh, uh, to the uh, thrombotic stroke but it's less of a problem because um, it, it just affected the less uh, uh, smaller smaller arteries okay now when it comes to hemorrhagic so some of the cause is hypertension and uh, you can have rupture of the penetrating arterioles that leads to uh, the uh, hemorrhagic as well. In terms of onset and progression, well, onset and progression. So thrombotic stroke is gradual, it is slow, uh, and uh, the, uh, it could be hours and days. So it's something that's brewing, that's the thrombotic stroke. In an embolic stroke, it is an abrupt change very quickly. It just happened, okay? Lacunar stroke is actually chronic as well, and it's also gradual. So you can see same mechanism that's happening in lacunar and thrombotic. It's just a matter of size. So lacunar is more of a slower size. And then hemorrhagic stroke is sudden, okay? It just happens very quickly. Now, in terms of scenario and what's happening with this is that there are warning signs uh, in the thrombotic stroke. Okay, usually it occurs at night though, and that's a problem. Uh, and uh, like TIA, these are all warning signs of a bigger stroke. Uh, whereas the embolic one, um, in uh, usually when somebody has had a heart problem, that's that's the... Um, that's a scenario where embolic stroke might happen, okay? Uh, in terms of the sites, uh, most common sites that are affected in a thrombotic stroke, you have the internal carotid artery or the middle cerebral artery. You have the, uh, in, in the embolic stroke, you have cortical and small vessels. And then you, in the lacunar type of stroke, you have the small perforating arteries. And these are like arterioles, very small arteries in the brain. Okay. And in terms of he uh, hemorrhagic stroke, uh, the sites, it will be whatever it is where, where the bleeding happens. Okay. Some of the manifestation, once again, for thrombotic stroke, you can have aphasia, visual field cuts, hemiparesis, hemisensory loss. And in the embolic, uh, stroke you can have cortical deficits is typical uh, hallmark of that and then in a lacunar stroke you have a discrete and specific subcortical deficits just tiny impairments with hemorrhagic stroke you have an increase of intracranial pressure and there is a subcortical deficit is much more extensive yeah in terms of the prognosis of the types of stroke a thrombotic one would have a severe impairment 
embolic stroke, you can have repeated strokes afterwards. If it's an embolic one, it can happen again and again. For those that are lacunar, so you have very good prognosis, around 85% uh, that a person will recover. So usually, you know, full recovery on the lacunar one uh, because all the other responsibilities of the brain will be taken over by the functioning parts. Okay, it's too little to notice, the brain would say. Whereas in the hemorrhagic one, the prognosis is quite poor and usually um, it, it's, it's the most fatal of the lot. But, you know, once it happens and when they recover, they recover very well as well. All right. So some of the uh, poor prognosticating in, um, factors um, for the stroke, right? So if the person is on a prolonged state of flaccid period, hypotonia or total flaccidity, prolonged state of that, that's quite bad. And um, if the recovery is very slow, usually within two to four weeks, and if you don't see that recovery at that time, then it is not looking so good. If there are no voluntary hand movements, Okay, within four to six weeks, that is a bad prognosis. Okay, and if you have uh, proximal spasticity, you know where the arm is tucked in, for example, it's in in internal rotation, that is quite bad as well. Okay, which means the hand or the arm does not have an abduction, and if the again late return of the deep tendon reflexes. Because no deep tendon reflexes is an indication that the um, tone is in flaccid state. So that is bad. And another thing that you want to keep an eye on is the hand opening or the finger, index finger extension. If you have a finger in the index finger extension, that is a good sign of a good potential recovery and a very intact sensation. So evidences are saying that if you have a two-point discrimination and that is intact, then that is a good indication of a good recovery. Right. So some of the problems then when you're doing rehabilitation with this, again, if they have certain and other medical conditions that will affect therapy, um, if they've post-surgery and you can't do so much, there are med other medical conditions. So it's not a classic stroke. There are other medical conditions. And this would be a problem when you do a physical rehabilitation, yeah? So physical rehabilitation. But when it comes that, but that does not stop us from doing a cognitive rehabilitation and sensory rehabilitation. So it's only on the bigger movements. Obviously, there'd be more precautions. And uh, when it comes to a person's ability to follow verbal or gestural instructions, that becomes an issue as well. Because every time you'll be battling with behavior and they don't understand why they need to do it, and the only time they will participate is when the session is happening at the right context. So you can only do washing and dressing or dressing practice in the morning when they actually needed to get changed. So that's because that that is the situation on that side. Um, yeah. So that would be some of the challenges for rehabilitation. So uh, in terms of another, a few more poor prognosticating factors for neurological recovery, is if they've had previous stroke, that is quite bad. Because, you know, something's, there's not a lot of foundation already. They've had previous strokes. It's not looking so good, okay? The older they are, the more problems it would be. So people who are frail, you know, you would have some situations there. Uh, if you have visual-spatial deficits, it'd be a problem as well. And for those who are suffering from severe urinary and bowel incontinence, will also be a problem as well. Right, so that is uh, a few more information that's there. Wow, it's, uh, I thought this is going to be uh, simple instruction or simple information about stroke, but it is quite complicated, isn't it, guys? Now, let's look at the difference between the right and the left hemisphere, shall we? 
Um, yes, it depends on the sidedness. So right hemispheric lesion versus the left hemispheric lesion. Okay. So with right hemispheres, there's no deficit in a person's ability to understand and express language. On contrast, or you know, in contrast, you would have problems with aphasia. So you would have speech differences between right and left. Okay. Now, in terms of perceptual skills, for the left brain, usually it's not impaired, but it is likely to be impaired on the right-sided stroke. Okay, so they would have impaired ability to assess their position in space, um, or they might have neglect or inattention. Again, so perceptual deficits. In terms of the memory, the right hemispheric side, so you would have, they are likely to, their verbal memory is likely to be intact, but they will have perceptual memory impairment. Whereas the left side, you have an impaired ability to retain verbal information. Uh, but they have... Um, so remote memory is likely going to be impaired as well for the left brain. right? So when you're doing your therapy, just check. If it is the left brain and communication is impaired, you better not give a lot of instructions. Okay, You better stop the yapping. Okay, better st just start gesturing. That's what I always say. If it is a right brain stroke, then yes, you can give instruction. You can tap onto the logical side of the person as well. Okay. On the right side, you can present with more of an inappropriate emotion. Okay. On the right side. So it's much more fleeting, behavioral differences, behavioral changes, denial. So you can have more inappropriate emotion on the right side stroke. Whereas on the left side, as long as they can communicate and they can express themselves, then it is, it's more normal. Okay. Well, obviously, you have to follow the uh, the course of the disability and the denial, you know, all of those Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying. They're not dying. They're not, but, you know, depression and anger, you know, those kind of things. Depression, anger, bargaining, um, oh, denial, sorry, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So they will follow that pathway on the left uh, hemispheric lesion. Now, some of the other differences, so in terms of, again, as I said, you know, uh, on the right side, you have impaired visual motor perception, you can have loss of visual memory, you can have lack of insight and judgment, um, but it's not overly obvious because of the, 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 the fluency problem. So they're fluent, but you don't know that they have problems with their insight. So they're quite difficult to rehabilitate in that sense because they don't have an insight. Okay, so that's on the right side. On the left side is they have difficulty communicating properly. They have decreased vocabulary and the, they have difficulty uh, with auditory retention um, span as well. Okay, but they have visual motor memory. They have visual motor perception. So most patients who has left-sided weakness will learn by visual demonstration, you do step-by-step step and you can do imitation as well, okay? All right. Right, moving on. So what are the medical intervention? Uh, again, supportive measures uh, would include early mobility, blood pressure control, maintenance of hydration, normal blood pressure, or normal glycemic and electrolyte balance. You want to maintain that. And you want to prevent aspiration pneumonia as well. And you can have, uh, um, you know, some, sometimes diuretics will be given, corticosteroids. And this is because you want they want some medical decompression, yeah? Other medical treatment may include anticoagulation, antiplatelet, aspirin. You know, these are the mainstay therapies, right? In terms of the patterns of recovery for stroke, you know, at onset, they have complete, sometimes, flaccid paralysis and their areflexia, depending on what type, you know, whether it's a severe one. And within 48 hours, you are expecting that the deep tendon reflexes should be coming back, right? And this is what you want to find out as early as possible. So when you see a person 
at the, uh, at the first instance. These are the ones that you want to check. Deep tendon reflex. And the reason why is because it's an indication that the tone is coming back. Okay. So after the deep tendon reflex is coming back, now what will happen is um, it, it, you go, um, it gets followed by some 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 progression of the tone you know from flaccidity to uh, beginnings of spasticity okay now those who's had uh, like complete motor paralysis um again it, it just follows that stage i would recommend that you guys look into brunstrom's stages of stroke and a motor recovery okay which you know at some point i'll have a discussion about that as well Okay. Oh, wow. Um, that is a lot, a lot of discussion about stroke. Um, what else? Ah, okay. Um, looking at some of my notes, uh, what are the things that we can do? I said I mentioned about stroke, but let's talk about some of the rehabilitation techniques, okay? Now, we're talking about restorative intervention, yeah? So the conventional ones is maintaining the range of motion uh, exercises, muscle strengthening, mobilization activities, and teaching of compensatory strategies. But that's on the functional side, and that, that is at the latter stage, okay? Now, some of the techniques that you need to use, some of the neurological techniques, would be a developmental-based therapeutic exercises, neuromuscular uh, uh, education as well. So you will be using the approaches of Brunström, where you use synergies through the use of stimulation of cutaneous and proprioceptive stimulation or stimuli, and you will have central facilitation as well, Brunström. Now you will be using rude approach as well. So remember these names, yeah, or or approaches. When with rude, you have to modify uh, the muscle tone and voluntary motor activity through use of cutaneous stimulations as well and sensory input. You control what you put in or you give to the person because anything that you give will have an outcome. That is rude. Uh, we'll have more details about these things, guys. Another one is bow bath, and this is what is the most popular one in the United Kingdom, where you will be using the postures uh, to, you know, you'll have, uh, you will want to suppress the synergy patterns with the sensory input and motor feedback as well. So that's the bow bath approach. You're talking about postural control in there, uh, key points of control. Yeah, and then you also have Cabot uh, uh, knot and Vos, which is PNF, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, and in here you are using the reflexes and pattern techniques and proprioceptive stimulation as well. These are some of the intervention. Now there are a few ones that are much newer intervention, uh, which is uh, motor relearning activities, uh, but there are only specific places or time where it would be very very effective motor relearning one they have to have good cognition uh this would be car and shepherd's approach yeah you have to have cognition you teach them you walk you use a mirror and say look you are standing on the left side what do you want to do lean over to the right side so motor relearning is the way to go for these type of patients um and it's mostly for the uh, less impaired um, clients as well less motor impairment the other one is now we have these uh, constraint induced movement therapy which is technically just use it just do it just use it okay do 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 move 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 okay which is quite good because eventually once you move then we can enhance and we can quantify uh, some movements or we can improve the quality as well. All right. Um, okay. And those are some of the approaches. Now, in terms of biofeedback, you use auditory, visual, sensory cues so that they can move properly. But it is important that these the patients will have to have no. They should know how to understand um, following instructions. 
or um, they should have uh, control of voluntary function. They need to have intact proprioception. Okay, they need to have acquired volitional control. So they need to be in control. Biofeedback. Uh, electrotherapy is another thing in terms of intervention. Um, again, it's uh, it it helps. You know, electrotherapy, they would want to call it FES, um, but it's FES, NMES, ES. At the end of the day, it is about stimulating the muscle. The FES, people are using it because of the word functional, um, but as long as you're stimulating the muscles and you would have these impulses going through the muscles, then it's almost really you are providing pro providing proprioceptive stimulation. Okay. Um, yeah, that's really amazing. I would hand on heart, you know, go with the effectiveness of the electronic stimulation. It's a beautiful thing. You know, it makes um easy makes it easy you know because rude approach would be talking about tapping vibratory input you know deep pressure or see if you go fes nmes direct in the muscle so it's really good let's talk about some of the specific problems when it comes to stroke there are quite a few problems um one of which is shoulder subluxation and when we're talking about shoulder subluxation, there here there is a palpable gap between the acromion process and the humeral head. And perhaps the reason why there is a subluxation is because there is a change in the mechanical maintenance of the glenohumeral joint stability. Now, in terms of the management, if the tone is improved and the tone is good, then sling is not required. So the management is really to develop that, that tone on the deltoids region and then onto the upper trapezius as well. Um, then, But if it is flaccid and it is very heavy, the arm is very heavy, then sling would be recommended, particularly on that stage when the upper limb is flaccid now sling is really easier because there's less of a fuzz you just put the arm into a sling and that's it it supports it the problem though is that it facilitates more of the flexor pattern and that's believed that that it develops more of the flexor pattern of the upper limb so what we now have is we use the uh um, the cuff, the shoulder cuff, right? So technically it's the same principle is what it does. Whether it's a sling or a shoulder cuff, it is the same principle. What it's doing is that it is supporting the forearm so that it approximates the joint, the glenohumeral joint is approximated. Because when the arm is dangling, it is heavy, and when the tone of the um, the deltoids is, is not there, then the weight itself just pulls the upper limb down. So the, the problem there is like, you know, when the upper limb is flaccid or flaccid, you know, it cannot be supported by any other means, particularly when the person is mobilizing. Right. So again, as I mentioned earlier on, the disadvantages of the sling is that it predisposes adduction contractures of the shoulder. So you have to combine this uh, shoulder cuff with mobilization of the shoulder. You have to do that. Okay. The other way on how to manage shoulder subluxation is you use, uh, again, forearm trough. trough which is an alternative al alternative to sling, and it can be attached to a wheelchair. So it's a device or it's something that you put on the wheelchair. It's just a place where you can actually put on the arm and it doesn't slide. So a cheaper version of the forearm trough would be a 
a, a, a pillow. But then functionally, when you have a pillow, it's so debilitating, isn't it? So you just have to weigh it. Is it going to be a cheaper option, pillow, or is it going to be the right way to do it? You use a forearm trough. Okay. So the indications for when you use the forearm trough is when the upper limb has very poor recovery and that there is... Um, um, there's also minimal subluxation and if the person is on a wheelchair as well. So that's something that you can utilize. Now, back in the days, there were some overhead sling that you can put in a, as an option on the wheelchairs. So these are attached to the wheelchairs for the non-ambulatory um, patients or stroke survivors. And... Uh, what it does, though, when the hand is elevated or there's an overhead sling, is that it prevents the hand from having the edema and it manages the shoulder subluxation. Another way um, to manage the shoulder subluxation, particularly when a person is sitting on a wheelchair, is that you use a lap board and the recommended and the very ideal lap board that you use would be one that is clear it has rounded edge and obviously secured to the wheelchair or the chair as well okay so there are some some clear ones um i've not worked with one that is actually made of glass but i think it's made of perplex and it is available the only reason why it's not being provided is because of the pragmatic reason of the cost and then the other thing to manage the shoulder subluxation would be the proper positioning, uh, which would allow approximation of the glenohumeral joint. Now, another of the problems that can take place when somebody's had a stroke would be a brachial plexus injury and peripheral nerve injury. To the affected arm and this is uh, manifested through a typical progression of upper limb recovery uh, like there's a, a lot of, of flaccidity and atrophy of the supraspinatus and then the infraspinatus and the deltoid and the biceps okay but there is also an increased tone or movement on the distal side which is affecting the upper limb extremity so it's really a strange behavior because at the very top you can have so much flaccidity and yet there is an increased tone on the distal part as well now this is from my experience i know i've read this uh, on on lots of texts when i was like studying um, but it's never been identified formally in practice in my practice in the united kingdom that there is a specific brachial uh, plexus injury because we are just considering that the upper limb is all totally um, it's hemi hemiplegic and it's paralyzed so it's all categorized in one category of paralysis but we very very seldom and I don't think in the 25 years of practice uh, that it's been identified that it is a, the cause of the problem is a peripheral nerve injury. Because, once again, it's, we're all putting it down to the hemiplegia that is caused by the stroke. So when we have this, in terms of treatment, Okay, or the diagnosis actually. How do you diagnose this? What you would do is you use an EMG. That's what you need to do. But then it is very, very unlikely, unless it's privately insured or you want that or it's an insurance funding source, then yes, maybe EMG can take place. But then again, it's not a common practice in the United Kingdom. So why would there be a brachial plexus injury or why is there a tendency for that to happen? And it's most likely because of improper positioning 
and because of a traction injury during transfers. Right? So the management, obviously, if, it, if, if the cause is handling and you're improperly handling the upper limb, if there's a traction injury, then the management around this is proper, uh, proper positioning, handling, appropriate handling of the upper limb, making sure that the supports that I mentioned earlier on is there. So some of the etiologies of peripheral neuropathies include uh, the radial, ulnar, median nerve injuries, and this may be due to the pressure or there could be a compression on the use of sling, a lap board, arm trough. Uh, again, we don't use axillary crutches nowadays uh, and other gait aids. You know, so the peripheral nerve injuries can actually take place as well if there is so much compression on the forearm. So there are things that you need to watch out for if you are using sling, forearm trough. So those are the things that you need to keep an eye on. Um, and uh, in the hand, again, P peripheral nerve injuries or PNIs happen because of compression. <laughs> Another interesting uh, specific problems that is associated with stroke is this thing called the shoulder hand syndrome. Yeah, and uh, or in medical terms, it is the reflex sympathetic dystrophy of the upper extremity, which is really interesting. And I've seen this so many times. And because I know of the symptoms, whenever I identify it, People I have been working with are almost amazed of, of, of how it is or how it's actually being managed or how I am addressing it. Um, because sometimes this, what happens is there is a referred pain on the shoulder. And, and this happens when you move the hand. Okay, so it is a syndrome. It is a... It, it's... I don't know what the 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 the, the pathophysiology behind it, but it's definite that if you move the wrist, particularly in extension, even when the arm is supported, then the patient would express some pain on the shoulder. Uh, but if you maintain that wrist in a proper position, and you just move the scapula alone, and you move the forearm alone without moving the hand or extending the wrist, and I find it to be on the wrist and the fingers, if you don't move that, then there is no pain. So you have to be mindful of this because people might say there is a shoulder pain um, and then when there is pain, pe people tend not to move the shoulder. But mobilization is one of the things that can resolve the pain. Okay, and this shoulder and hand syndrome is usually happening around the you know the second to the fourth month after uh, the the CVA. Um, but then again, it's now being managed by you know some some medications as well. Um, so some symptoms is again there is painful AROM or painful active range of motion or painful passive range of motion again particularly with uh, whenever you do some some shoulder movement there's there's localized tenderness you would see hand edema again it is i've seen it much more on on whenever you do an extension of the wrist and then if you move the the, the fingers as well so you would find those symptoms Okay, but that's not to say that the shoulders are not painful to movement as well, particularly with uh, with flexion and abduction. Okay, so whenever you do the passive AROMs with flexion and abduction, then the person will refer to pain. But all you need to do is just be mindful of that um, um, the. Uh, the scapular humeral rhythm, you know, that's something that you need to keep an eye on. So there are stages into it, you know, these shoulder hand syn um, syndrome. 
uh, stage one, there is a, you know, the hand is stiff, there is edema, uh, and then it gets clammy and uh, it, it, it gets cold. Now, that's the first stage. The second stage would be there is a, the pain starts to decrease and then the edema is decreasing as well. But there is an increase of stiffness. Uh, there could be some tropic changes and then there could be osteoporosis. And then the third stage of this is an actual atrophy. Okay, actual atrophication of the muscles. And what do you expect when you're, when you're not moving the upper limb? then that's what you would um, that you would get okay so the most important management of of this shoulder hand syndrome is prevention and you can prevent shoulder hand syndrome through daily range of motion exercises and if you can do it with full range of motion so you see there uh, in terms of the therapy input you know, even if you're not going to get anything, you have to do gentle mobilization through, you know, through daily range of motion activities as frequently as you can. So you have to move it in a gentle way. And if it's done regularly, then it will prevent the shoulder hand syndrome. So you do that. And it is also very important that you have to have an early recognition of this and it's really important so that there will be a successful management whenever it presents itself. So in terms of the management of the shoulder hand syndrome, so your objective is number one is you really want to decrease the pain so that you can allow passive stretching. Okay. And you want to decrease the pain and edema, and you do this in, you know, around um, at least it, it happens in more than one week. Using compression gloves, you can use that. Range of motion activities, you use resting splints, overhead slings, which doesn't happen a lot nowadays. Slings, okay, you can use that. Again, you use the uh, um, shoulder cuffs. Nowadays, that's the more updated ones. Okay. And the one thing is you can use pneumatic compression units as well. So this is why I was so excited when I have, uh, uh, when there is this movement for IPC or intermittent pressure or uh, intermittent compression garment for the lower limb. And that's more for to, to prevent uh, the um, deep vein thrombosis. But when I saw that, I felt uh, there was a movement on that. And I thought that would have been so wonderful for the upper limb because that is going to give the upper limb a serious and, and consistent compression stimulation that it needs. Uh, and that is more to prevent um, the shoulder... Uh, and hand, hand, shoulder, hand syndrome as well. So for those of you who are interested and you wanted to do some studies, explore that one. Use of compressor garment to prevent and to manage the shoulder, hand syndrome. Um, I'll have a look at that again. So again, it's, a, it's an evidence that I wanted to find out, but help yourself to that idea, guys. Now, when it comes to the pain management, then obviously the classic uh, ones that you use would be TENS, trans uh, cutaneous electric nerve stimulation. You can have uh, oral analgesics, analge analgesia. Sometimes amitriptyline would be used as well for pain management. And again, there are a concoction of pain medication which the medics would explore to be supported by our pharmacology team. Then um, sometimes prednisolone is, uh, is, is given, which is a short course of anti-inflammatory, which is, what is that? Is that uh, steroid-based, isn't it? There could be local injections. You can be sympathetic blocks uh, uh, injection as well. But 
again, that is very, very seldom explored and utilized as a management in the United Kingdom, but it's there. It's out there. I think the most practical ones is prevention, and prevention can be done through regular passive stretching, passive movement positioning. Okay, moving on, let's go into another stroke-specific problem, and that would be spasticity. Spasticity is a, yes, everybody wanted to learn about spasticity as well. They see it as a problem, but I think back in the 60s, 50s, 70s, and 80s, they thought of it as a, uh, a serious problem that needed to be managed. And you don't want spasticity. So in the end, the person doesn't move at all. They don't move the person. And you use lots of splints, positioning. Again, this would be bow-bath-centered uh, information and management. Yeah. So some of the pathophysiology for uh, the spasticity is... Uh, there's a belief that there is a, a disinhibition. And uh, so inhibition means that, um, you know, all of our muscles are technically behaving like a, a, a reflexive arc. So there is a nerve that goes through the spinal cord and then from the spinal cord, it goes up to the upper centers to the brain and then the inhibition that's coming from the brain would come up from the brain, coming down and back to the muscle. Okay. Now, without the activity of the brain or the influence of the brain, then there would be a nerve from the muscle going to the spinal cord and then it'll go back to the muscle again, which is typically a, a reflex arc. So that is the disinhibition. So without that disinhibition that's coming from the brain, then the muscle is in a constant state of contraction. And there is a uh, constant state of contraction, as I mentioned. So that would have been the uh, pathophysiology. So the other one is perhaps because there is a denervation and there is super sensitivity for days. Okay. And that's about the pathophysiology. When it comes to treatment, pyramid for dyspasticity, which again, very seldom nowadays that I have been encountering this. So you have myelotomy, which is from what I gather is something that they're doing in cerebral palsy and particularly for children. Myelotomy, myelo would be spinal cord. Otomy is just a slight excision of those things. Or chordectomy. Okay. So you also have neurectomy, rhizotomy, tenotomy. Wow. Look up those words, guys. Okay. And uh, you have some of the interventions would have been uh, phenol nerve blocks, phenol root blocks, FES is something that I find to be very useful, or even the NMES. You don't have to use it functionally, just have that contraction. So what's nice about FES, or functional electronic nerve stimulation, is that the stimulation that's coming from the, uh, um, the, the unit, it spikes up. And it increases the amplitude or the strength of the electric current going into the muscles. And then it'll come down and up and down. So there is a ramp. And after that, the upper limb is really much more supple. It's really much easier to move. It just feels like you can relax it and you can do some movement in it. And again, hand on heart, I have experienced this. FES is such a good treatment for to manage spasticity. Now, they would be giving some medications and drugs as well. So there are plenty of that. Positioning will have an influence on spasticity. Yes, that's true. Uh, if it is too much, spasticity will become 
too much and it becomes rigid. And when the upper limb becomes rigid, then now there is a Botox um, injection and that's uh, being provided as well. Now, one more of the problems, apart from in addition to spasticity, shoulder hand syndrome, you can have cognitive impairment. So again, with stroke rehabilitation, the success of the rehabilitation will depend on a person's ability to follow commands and to understand what's happening and their ability to learn as well. They need to have at least a very good cognitive capacities so that they can take part and be responsible in their rehabilitation. And with good cognition will come with good motivation. So they can overcome a lot of, of disability because one can work their way around the problem if the cognitive capacities are intact. So with regards to cognitive retraining, it needs to be done in a consistent manner and it has to be done by the team members. It has to be done regularly. And again, any conversation with the patient, as long as you start to encourage a person to start uh, thinking about things, then you're already doing cognitive retraining. You talk to them about the weather, you're doing a cognitive retraining. You get them to remember things about uh, the past, you know, memory and recall, you do a cognitive retraining. So there is no escape from cognitive retraining. You just need to define what you guys are doing. So the person needed to have some kind of a stimulation program to enhance the memory, their uh, orientation, their recall, their alertness, attention span, abstract reasoning, their ability to categorize things. As I said, you know, basic problem solving techniques as well. And um, you can have um, after this post discharge planning as well. So you can plan what ha uh, you can start talking about what they want to do once they have been discharged. And uh, yes, those are some of the things, the basic ones. But just be mindful, again, cognition would be a, a, a problem, could be a problem when somebody has had a stroke. Another specific stroke problem would obviously be a post-stroke depression. And who would not be depressed, isn't it? So you can have, uh, at first it may just be a, a simple psychological reaction because of the change on, on, on physical and, and cognitive impairment. But, you know, it is. It is a common, it's no longer after a while, it doesn't become simple anymore. It becomes an issue because it's such a life-changing situation and event uh, it's been believed that it is much more common with on on people with left hemisphere uh, uh, people who had left cva yeah now it usually happens more around six months to two years after the stroke and the factors are that there's brain lesion there's a denial in the illness as well what we need to keep an eye on uh, is we need to keep an eye on a, a slowed or inconsistent, uh, inconsistent participation, uh, poor cooperation. Uh, if they have, uh, again, we need to keep an eye on clinical deterioration because it will really factor on somebody's emotion. Yeah, and you also need to find out this is best established when you go and talk to family members not just when you are talking with the patient because the patient may just deny that there is a problem or if they have stroke they have anosognosia they may not realize that there is a problem at all 
but you can see that their engagement is really, really, really affected. Okay. Um, people who's had uh, communication impa uh, impairment, like they're aphasic, for example, they can get very, very frustrated. So some of the general medical complications of having stroke would be you can have DVT, so deep vein thrombosis. And if you have deep vein thrombosis on the lower limb, you have to be mindful of the pulmonary embolism, the tendency for that to happen. DVT and pulmonary embolism, again, very serious and it can cause, it, it can be very, very fatal. Uh, you can have seizures, you can have another uh, stroke after having a stroke or uh, you have to have you can look out for some complications on the medication so some medications would have complications um, nutritional issues as well so you can have that uh, particularly if somebody has swallowing problems or dysphagia so that's another problem uh, almost always uh, associated but there is a high link between cardiac problems as well a very uh, what's the word um, uh, concerning problem is which has a huge impact is is urinary and fecal incontinence imagine a, a young person having a stroke somebody who's in their 40s or 50s and 60s and and they're having uh, urinary and fecal incontinence imagine that how it would affect a person and how uh, it would really change their lives, particularly if they have a partner, if they're married, if they have young children. Uh, falls is, a again, one of the problems as well. And the musculoskeletal injuries, because of that, that would be resulting on that one. And uh, lastly, there could be a decreased activity tolerance. So that is stroke, guys. I've discussed a good few information about it. But this is more on the uh, discussion, particularly on the medical side of things. And this is more on the foundation. So I'm providing you with the scientific information uh, that, is, uh, that can be useful for your practice. If you enjoyed this podcast, talk to your friends and colleagues about it. Like it, subscribe, share, and do what you can to appease whatever algorithm that is at play. I am but your humble clinician, albeit with years of experience, I have very little understanding of this digital world. So if you have any questions or if you have topics that you want me to talk about, drop me an email. It's riot conversations at gmail.com just remember guys anything you do matters and has an outcome until next time bye